please open up in your Bibles to Jude, specifically verse 20, go 20 through 25, Lord willing, ending the book this morning. It's been some time since we were last in Jude, uh, a fair number of months, and so please permit me to give a quick recap of uh, what we've studied thus far in the book. All of the sermons are online. If you're at all curious to kind of get a recap there, go through them. This tiny book at the end of the New Testament is concerned with one major problem, and that problem is false teaching. False teaching, and more specifically, the false teachers who bring false teaching. It was a danger present in the churches in that day. It was a scheme of Satan to distort the truth to the destruction of many. Jude, at the beginning of this book, told us about the error that he was confronting. He said, certain people have crept in unnoticed, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny the Lord Jesus Christ. So certain people were coming into the midst of the churches, and they were perverting the grace of God. Specifically, they were essentially saying that because we are saved by grace, we can do whatever we want. Our deeds have very little consequence because ultimately it's by grace that we're saved. And the danger that Jude says they pose to the churches is severe and acute. Jude calls them hidden reefs, like unseen rocks that will sink mighty ships. And Jude will not stand for such a perversion to go unchallenged in the church of God. The glory of the Lord The purity of his church demanded that Jude go to war against this theological fiction that deeds don't matter at all because of the grace of God. He launches a utterly ferocious assault against these false teachers in the book, and he argues that though we are indeed saved by grace, that does not mean that our works don't matter. Their works certainly do matter. And judgment will come on account of all that these false teachers have done. And he devotes a significant portion of this book to the the destruction that awaits the false teachers. In verses 5 through 7, Jude gives various examples of God's judgment on evil deeds. He talks about wrath that came on rebellious Israel. He talks about judgment that came against sinful angels. And he talks about the fire and sulfur that rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah for their sexual defilements. If God didn't spare his own people, the angels, or mighty cities in the past, he will certainly not spare evil men who love the darkness and teach the doctrine of demons. Jude continued on in the book to write about how these so-called teachers were worse than useless. They were clouds that watered nothing. They were shepherds who fed only themselves. They were fruitless trees that were uprooted. Then in verses 14 through 19, Jude tells of how The judgment that's going to come on them has been long foretold. It was foretold by Enoch right after the creation of the world, even before the flood, and it was even repeated and reiterated by Jesus' apostles. And that brings us up to our text this morning, verses 20 through 25. Now, it's a really interesting switch in this text. We'll read it in a moment, but in this text, he switches the subject of who he's been talking to. For most of the epistle, he's been talking about stories from the Old Testament, 
judgment that comes on unbelievers, but then he switches and says, but you, beloved, but you, and he begins our text this morning with a, but you. Christians here are given direct instruction. And false teachers led many astray in Jude's day, but false teachers in our own day lead billions of people astray, marching them straight into the gates of hell, into Satan's grasp. And so Jude gave instructions to the believers of his day, here's what you must do in light of the falsehood, in light of needing to contend for the faith. I think we would do well to heed what he says, because he's talking not only to the Christians of his day, but also to us, brothers and sisters, and how we should act in light of the false teaching that abounds in our age. Jude will give us three sets of instructions that we'll see in this text, three action items, three ways that we should live in light of the abundance of lies and evil in the world. His instru- three instructions are these. First, we need to keep ourselves in the love of God. Second, we need to restore with mercy those who are caught in lies. And third, we need to rest in the Lord who keeps his people from stumbling. Brothers and sisters, you and I are in dire need of the Lord's help this morning. Our lives are saturated with exposure to lies. Arrows of Satan loosed from every angle at us and our families and, and our church. Lies, lies, lies. And unless the Lord gives grace to his people, we shall all surely be swept away in the torrent. For our enemy is strong, his lies are bold and convincing, and he has as his ally our own flesh that seeks our demise. And so we need the Lord's help. We need the Lord's help to make us firm in the truth, not just now, but for the rest of our lives. We need his preserving help to keep us from error, to root us and establish us in the faith. And we also need his aid if we are to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, like he said at the beginning of this book. It seems like if you read the world, the days ahead of us seem like they may get darker still. But to us has been given the Spirit of God and the promise of victory. He will protect his people. He will protect you. He will come to your aid and preserve you. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and placed us in the kingdom of his son, and he will keep us. And so let us come before him and ask of him to do the very thing he's promised to do, to preserve us and aid us. I'm going to read our text, verses 20 through 25, and then we'll pray and ask for the Lord's help. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are weak. 
we are aware that apart from your grace, there is no hope for us. We are not more powerful than Satan. We are not even more powerful than our flesh. Lord, we are in desperate need of your help. Lord, our church, our, the, the people here need you, Lord. Preserve our faith, we ask. Do not let us fall into gross heresy and error and doctrines which will twist us. Lord, preserve us. Your word, you promise, is able to train us and correct us and make us equipped for every good deed. Lord, use your word this morning to strengthen us in the faith. Lord, draw us near to yourself and preserve us. And Lord, also we ask, please equip us for the battle at hand, the battle to fight against falsehood, to fight against the enemy, and to advance your kingdom to the very ends of this world. Lord, strengthen us for this task. Equip us for this task. Lord, we need your help. Please, please help us. Please help us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin by looking at verses 20 through 21. I'll read it one more time. He says, but you, beloved, there's that address to the believers here, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Notice there are four instructions here, four pillars, if you will, four commands about how Christians should act in light of deadly error. He says these four things, build yourself up in the faith, pray in the Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, and wait for the mercy of Christ. Four sets of instructions. Now, the grammar of this verse highlights one of these instructions as his primary point, uh, his primary command. Specifically, when he says, keep yourself in the love of God, that carries the primary weight of command in this text. That, that grammatically means that's his main concern. That's the imperative. That's the command. That's his foremost instruction for us. Overcome these attacks of Satan and the danger in the churches, and the danger to your own souls by keeping yourselves in the love of God. And then he gives us three ways, three means by which we keep ourselves in the love of God. We do so by building yourselves up in the faith, praying in the Spirit, and waiting for the mercy of Christ. Notice those three are ING words. They're modifying that main command, keep yourself in the love of God. Let's begin with the very first instruction of the four, building yourself up in your most holy faith. This idea of building yourself up carries with it not the establishment of something new. In other words, what Jude is not saying is build something new. No, he's saying rather to continue building upon that which has already been laid. He's essentially saying strengthen your faith. Strengthen your faith. Faith is more than only knowledge. It begins with knowledge, but presses beyond knowledge to a hope and an assurance and a trust in God. We must be, as Christians, ever increasing in these things, pressing forward if we desire to keep ourselves in God's love. 
You know, when I'm out on the streets talking with Latter-day Saints, one thing that I come across very commonly is people who say that they were once Baptist or Methodist or some other denomination, and uh, then they became Mormon. And I usually do some mild investigating when they say that, because I'm curious. Uh, And it's frequently the case, not always, but frequently the case, I find out they had very little grounding in the faith, a little grasp of the precious doctrines of Christianity, very little knowledge of what God has revealed in His Word, little pinning to historic Christianity, little trust in the all-sufficient and finished work of Jesus on the cross. And that, I think, has served to me a very, to, to be a very sober warning for my own soul. The one who is not built up in the faith is prone to be swept away by lies. If you do not know the Christian faith, if you are not mature in your understanding of what it means to be a Christian, then you'll be like a tree without roots in the middle of a tornado, just uprooted and blown around. For the protection of your own souls, brothers and sisters, never be content with where you are in the Christian faith. Never be satisfied with your current status of understanding and holiness and love for God. Never look at yourself and say, that's it, I'm there, check. You may be saved, but salvation is the beginning of the Christian life. It is not the end. It is where we begin the journey of walking with the Lord. You must walk with God. You must walk with Him, brothers and sisters, pressing forward to know the Lord who saved you. This act of building yourself up in the faith is predicated on humility. It requires a humble view of of yourself, a recognition that I do not have everything. I do not know everything. I am not as advanced as I ought to be in holiness. There's more for us to learn, more sins for us to kill, more of the Bible for us to master, more communion with God to be had. In my life, I feel like I have repeatedly um, been forcibly humbled by God dropping me in different situations. Uh, When I grew up in the western suburbs of Chicago, I, just in the church that I was in, a lot of people were like, oh, Bradley, you know, he knows the Bible. And so I had this kind of like, that's right, I do know the Bible. Uh, and then I went to Bible college, and I was like, I do not know the Bible. <laughs> not even a little bit. There were, it was shocking to me how much I did not know. And then I graduate, and I have a Bible degree, and I'm like, now, <laughs> now I know. And the Lord plopped me out here in Utah, and I was like, these poor Utah Christians without knowledge and understanding. I will help them. And I came out here, and I'm surrounded by Christians at our church. I'm like, you guys know way more than me. How, how is that? What is, I have a degree. This, how do you know more than me? And I was just humbled that I was so arrogant in thinking I had understanding. And then beyond just understanding, I was shown just how, uh, how little spiritual maturity I had, how little I cared for holiness, I was ashamed to look at other believers and say, I, was, I thought I was that, all that. But no, I'm so weak. I know nothing. I know nothing. And that taught me two things. One, God has a way of reminding us that we're weak in order to make us humble. But two, 
It, it told me that Christianity is vast. The Christian faith is, is vast. There are rich pastures in unexplored valleys and hidden mountains of the faith you don't even know exist. The number of times I've been confronted with an idea, or like, I didn't even know this entire branch of Christian thought existed until someone shows me a book and like, there's hundreds of books written on it. I was just ignorant of that. There's so much in Christianity. Ours is a very rich heritage, a profound tradition. Ephesians 4.11, sometimes referred to as the fivefold ministry, says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. God gave these roles so that the body of Christ may be built up in the faith. This is the same essential word that Jude uses here. Uh, God gave these offices so that we may be mature. We've been given, you and I have been given great shepherds and teachers throughout church history to help strengthen our faith. That's not even including the apostles and prophets that form the, the essence of our faith here in God's Word. I'm just talking about church history. The shepherds and teachers that we've been given are not just those that are alive right now, though that is certainly a blessing to us. We have a deep well of richness to dip into and drink from that God gave us gifts to the church. Some of those brilliant minds in all of human history have been Christians who spent their entire lives meditating on the things of God. And they considered, how can I best encourage the saints to live holy lives in the present evil age? We would do well to look at what they've written and what they've said and stand in a line and a heritage of Christianity that spans back to the time of Christ. Their writings, their insights, they're, they're just gifts from God to the church used to protect our souls and equip us for the work of ministry. That's just one facet of building yourself up in the faith, but that is the command here. Build yourself up in the faith. Don't be naive about yourself. Press forward. Jude goes on in verse 20 to say, we keep ourselves in the love of God by praying in the Holy Spirit, praying in the Holy Spirit. By praying in the Holy Spirit, Jude means to say prayer that is spiritual, prayer that is from, surrounded by the work of the Holy Spirit. That means it's not fleshly. That's not prayer that's of man. That's prayer that's of God. John Bunyan once famously said that there is no man nor church in the world that can come to God in prayer but by the assistance of the Holy Spirit. There are many hindrances that keep men from communing with God in prayer. If you just spend some time and list out all of the reasons we should not be able to pray, you'd be astonished by how many reasons there are. I mean, to start, we're human and God is God. The mechanics of this how does it even work? He's unchanging, infinite, eternal. We're earthly, bound within time. How can an infinite God like that even relate to beings like us? And, and then beyond that, we're so sinful. We're so sinful. God should not even give us an audience. He shouldn't even hear us because our sin is so offensive to Him. Beyond that, the Bible tells us we don't even know what we should be praying for. 
We don't even know the things that are most important to prayer for, to, to pray for. And then we are weak in our flesh. Every Wednesday morning, we have a men's Bible study. And I sit there and there's music playing through the speaker. And when we pray for each other, it's a constant battle to like put my mind back on prayer because this music is blaring in my ears the whole time. And it's just the battle of our flesh and our world. We're surrounded by noise and distractions. And we're busy, 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 always doing something, always going somewhere. That's an enemy to prayer. Busyness. Filling, filling with things that aren't communion with God. We have so many reasons that we shouldn't be able to pray, that it is a miracle that God has torn through all of them so that we could commune with Him. We have a mediator in Christ, the God-man who gives us access to the throne of grace. What a miracle! You can enter before God and come to Him with requests because of Jesus. What profound profound kindness that is. Who are you to speak with the Creator? Who are you to come before Him and and not just praise Him? Who are you to even praise Him? Who are you to come before Him and ask Him for things? Yet, yet, not only does He invite us to come, He makes a way for us to come. We have a great high priest who offered a once-for-all sacrifice on our behalf, cleansing us from sin, cleansing us from unrighteousness. When God looks at us, He sees us as righteous and holy, not because we're righteous and holy, but because Jesus was. We're told in Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit Himself even prays for us. God is praying for you. What? Prayer is a miracle in and of itself. It is an evidence of the grace of God, and it is an evidence of the love of God for you. If you are to keep yourself in the love of God, you must make use of this tool that He's given you. Spiritual prayers are intricately tied to the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We essentially, when we pray, we're saying the things that God taught us. That's really what prayer is. Think about it. When we praise Him in prayer, we are telling Him of the things He's revealed to us in nature and in His Word. Thank you, Lord, for creating the stars. God put the stars there. He taught us that He was the creator of the stars. We declare what God has spoken to our hearts. We sing what He's opened our eyes to behold. When we sing amazing grace, when when we're essentially praying to God through song, We're praying what He's told us in His Word. We're praying His truth back to Him. Jesus tells us that God already knows what we need before we ask. In fact, even more than just knowing what we need, God has providentially placed us where we are in life to bring us to the point where we'll come to Him for help and aid. He's not surprised by what we need. He has led us to a place of weakness so often so that we would ask Him for aid so that we would come to Him in prayer. When you come to the Lord in prayer, you come because the Lord bids you come. And so Jude instructs us to pray in the Spirit. Such prayer will warm our awareness of God's love for us. We cannot pray, I think, without necessarily uh, acknowledging God's love towards us. There's no way for us to pray without contemplating those things that He said when we pray it back to Him. We're, We're just 
We're reminding ourselves when we pray of all the ways in which God loves us. And prayer, it has this effect of, if you spend time in prayer, you, you, you may know what I mean, like it, it lifts you out of this, this worldly fog. You're just the mundane and, and the, the daily um, ho-hum of life. It, it, it lifts you into this awareness of God where your mind is fixed on Him and your heart draws near to Him and you love Him and you're aware of His love for you. It, it, it pulls us out of the world uh, it, to give us sweet communion with God. And so what better way then to keep ourselves in God's love than by prayer? I, I know that uh, it is a truth that many Christians struggle to feel God's love. This is a, an epidemic of Christians in our day. We just we struggle to feel God's love. Just look at the stats on people who, uh, a host of people who are uh, depressed and anxious and, and have no rest in their souls. This is a very constant problem in our society. For Christians, it's like a fire that has died down to embers. There's a glow there, but the heat it doesn't feel like it's warm any, anymore. I imagine there are probably many in this room this morning who feel that exact sense. I don't experience the love of God. How prone are we in weakness to forget that God's love towards us is constant? It does not change. He has shown us immense love, and I think that God has provided us one remedy for this sickness in our heart through prayer, if we would only take hold of it and use it. We can, we can so hardly be bothered to spend five minutes in prayer a day. Five minutes in prayer a day, and you're feeling like, I spent some time praying today. We just, we, that's it. And, and even that is a profound work of, of, of spiritual maturity for, for many people. And I don't say this to instill shame or guilt. That's not my goal. Rather, I say it to offer hope. If you feel in your soul this burden, if you feel distant from the Lord, if your soul feels parched, like, like you're thirsty, like you've been marching through the desert, wanting water, looking for sweet relief, then come to the Lord in prayer. Your soul was designed by the Creator, to drink deeply from the oasis of prayer. Psalm 42 says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. We thirst. We might not even realize that's what we're thirsting for. But we thirst for God. As you were created to parch your physical thirst with a drink of water, you were created to parch your spiritual thirst with communion with God. And this brief taste, when you pray, this brief taste of nearness to God, it ultimately reminds you of the future rest that we are going to have in eternity with our Lord. It points to the hope to come. So, brothers and sisters, right now, stop at the oasis of prayer and Remember that ahead of us lies an endless ocean of sweet communion with God and eternal rest for the weary soul. The hymn that we often sing here says it, uh, I think, very well. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So, these things are aids to help us keep ourselves in the love of God. I now want to consider that section in verse 21 more properly. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep ourselves. Guard ourselves is another way to say that. Christians 
are loved by God. Christians are loved by God. Jude began this whole letter by addressing the beloved in God the Father. Man, far too quickly do we become unmoved by how profound this simple statement is. God loves us. God loves you. And he gave, and he gave, and he gave of himself for you, for the sake of his church, for the sake of his bride. Words fall short of conveying the immensity of God's kindness towards you. The love of God is the source of every good thing you ever have known and ever will know. It is a sign of his sure love for you. Do you have something in your life that you hold dear? That is a gift from God because he loves you as a Christian. You were born again because he loves you. You have the Holy Spirit in you because he loves you. Titus 3 says, when the loving kindness of God appeared, he saved us according to his own mercy by regeneration and the Holy Spirit poured out in Christ. The the great mystery, the mystery of the cosmos, the mystery of the gospel is that unworthy, ungodly people like you and like me are loved by God. We are, we are unworthy. We deserve nothing. We deserve nothing. You deserve nothing. You've rebelled. You were his enemy. While we were still sinners, Christ died. I heard this example once before. I, I've probably said it before in a sermon, but uh, the example of uh, you're in a war and Uh, An enemy throws a grenade and it's all around you and your friends and your buddies on your side, your comrades, and, and the enemy jumps out and jumps on the grenade and takes the blast to save you. You were God's enemy. You were not his ally. You were his enemy, and he jumped on that grenade for you because he loved you. Why? Because he did. He sent his son to bear terrible wrath on behalf of his enemies, to die for those who hated him. We have to realize as Christians that the love of God is shown in Christ Jesus. It's like the sun is the source of heat and light in our solar system. But the the sun's rays, the heat that that we receive and experience, that's Christ. God is like the sun. Christ are the, the sun's rays which warm us and illuminate all things. If you want to behold the immensity of God's great love for you, then look to Jesus. That's where you'll see it. See his obedience and and his sufferings and his continual intercession for you. Meditate on those things and you will better grasp God's love. One of the great travesties of our day is that uh, love is often emphasized in, especially the evangelical church, but it's emphasized in such a way as to make it seem fluffy, uh, like this, this fluffy love, like God's version of love is just like, I don't care about sin and I think you're really cool. That's not, that's not the love of God. The love of God is bloody. It hung Jesus on the cross. It is 
filled with wrath and hatred for sin, but towards those who are in Christ, the blessings are innumerable. There is no greater expression of God's love than His wrath poured out on Christ at the cross. I was talking earlier about people who struggle to know God's love for them. Uh, So many people who struggle with anxiety and, and depression and darkness Oh, there's hope in the love of God. There's hope. Uh, There is something about Christianity that is able to give people an uncanny peace. And it's not a thing rooted in us. It's not something in us. It's something outside of us. That's why Paul says he learned the secret to being content in any circumstance. And I think sometimes we read that and we're like, must have been some apostolic superpower because I can't do that. It was not an apostolic superpower. It was God. Remember, hold on to this in dark days. Remember that God's love is constant. God is unchanging. He never changes. He is always the same. His love for you has always been the same from eternity past into eternity future. His love towards you does not change. And yet, like clouds may come and block the bright rays of the sun, so too do things, tribulations, distractions, trials, come in and block our experience of God's love. This is why sometimes it feels like God's love is distant. It's not. His love is always shining. Behind the clouds which block our view, that sun shines bright and hot, unchanged, unfazed, merely hidden for a moment. And the day shall come again when those clouds will part. For all believers, this will happen. The day will come when those clouds will part and the brilliant rays will once again illuminate your life. So take heart if you're discouraged this morning. Take heart if you feel anxiety, if you feel distant from God. The one who knows, rests in, and experiences God's love by faith will know peace in their soul. We have something that the hopeless and depressed pagans who self-medicate themselves into the ground don't have. We have the ever-present love of God. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. The Lord is your shepherd. He makes you lie down in green pastures. He leads you beside the still waters. He restores your soul. Cling to him. You know, I have a number of friends from uh, college who are missionaries in Israel right now or who are themselves actually Messianic Jews, that is, ethnic Jews who believe in Jesus. And I was thinking about in the midst of this war that's broken out, suffering around the world, if they were to ask, what should we do? I'd say, exactly what Jude says here. (laughs) Exactly the same things. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Remain in the love of God. And though there's little peace in the world, there will be profound peace in your soul. Outside of simply meditating on these truths, I want to practically consider how we can keep ourselves in God's love. Let me ask this probing question. How do you practically experience and receive God's love for you? Infinite eternity would not be enough to actually recount all the ways in which we experience this. But think about the the pinnacle ways that you receive and understand God's love. Uh, There are a few that I would like to highlight and say really focus on these things. The first and the most obvious in my mind was communion. 
the Lord's Supper, which we, we just took a little bit earlier. There are few ways in which we more consciously and straightforwardly experience God's love than in the Lord's Supper. Each week, Christ gives himself to us in communion. He spiritually dwells with his bride as we point back to the climactic demonstration of God's love uh, to Jesus' death on the cross. But when we partake of the elements, that act of remembrance is a receiving of the Lord Jesus. It's a physical display of our faith in him, of our receiving his sacrifice on our behalf. And so in the meal, we're renewed in our faith. We're reminded of truths of the gospel. Forgiveness is offered in a visible kind of playing out of this. We receive forgiveness for our sins. I'm not saying they, they effectually forgive sins, but it's, a, it's playing out the truths of our salvation. And our consciences that are often laden with guilt are reminded of the freedom that we have in Christ. They're reminded of the forgiveness that we have. They're reminded that we have freedom in the Lord Jesus. We also know of God's love for us because of His Word. If we are to keep ourselves in that love, we ought not separate ourselves from Scripture. It must be most dear to us. God is not like a secret admirer in elementary school who watches from afar hoping we figure out that, you know, He, he loves us. Uh, no, He has spoken to us. He has given us His Word. He has revealed Himself to us. To us has been revealed ancient mysteries, the workings of God in redemptive history. So, store up Scripture in your heart. Store it up. Meditate on it. Know God's Word, and you will know God's love. Jude already mentioned the function of prayer in this task, and so I wish to only add one more thing to this list for your sakes. The gathering of God's people each Lord's Day. The gathering of believers. When you interact with other Christians, you should be reminded of God's goodness towards His people. These are the ones, these are the ones God has sent His Son to die for. You ought to be reminded by that each Sunday. These are the excellent ones in the land, the psalm says. Christians are the best people in the world, and they're shining reminders of God's grace and His love. Each week, the Lord has provided a context for us to be re uh, reminded of the truths of the gospel. It's built into the fabric of the week. You are to be refreshed in the gospel each Sunday, renewed, reminded each Sunday. It's a time for us to come and set aside our daily anxieties and our tasks, the, the struggles of the work week, and just dwell in God's presence with the saints. Each week, is a gift, and it is a foretaste of eternal rest and a glimpse of the glory that is to be revealed. It, it's given to you. The, the gathering of the saints is given to you for your sakes, for encouragement, for perseverance, to keep you in God's love. Do not harm yourself by separating from the Lord's gathering. Do not take time away from the gathering of the saints for other things. Don't do it. Dwell with God's people each Sunday. Prioritize the gathering of the saints. What could be better for you than to gather together with God's people? 
Brothers and sisters, if you neglect these means of grace, then you will surely stray from the love of God. You're either growing in grace or you're straying. The one immersed in God's love will not heed false teaching. Jude's concern first, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep watch over your souls. And also, the one saturated with his love will be more uh, suited to combat the errors of falsehood. May God give you a sense of his love for you through the Holy Spirit and keep you and equip you. Jude ends this verse with a final instruction to help us guard ourselves in God's love. Wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. When we believed in Jesus, we were immediately granted mercy. God no longer counted our sins against us. Um, that includes pardon. That includes the down payment of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Holy Spirit. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. That, that contains peace with God. But the present mercies we experience anticipate a future day of mercy. The mercies we know now are pointing to the mercy that is to be revealed on the last day. To wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus, like Jude says, is to live a life of hope in the midst of darkness. I think that's what essentially he's saying. And that hope for the future keeps us in the love of God. Though the days are dark, and they are dark, though the flesh stings, and though darkness looms, the one who cries out for mercy will receive mercy at the final coming of the Lord Jesus in judgment. I've been uh, reading through the Lord of the Rings books recently. I've never done it before. Fantastic experience, in part because like every notable pastor in the last 50 years has to have a Lord of the Rings sermon illustration somewhere. So I felt like I needed to you know, catch up to that. Um, but in the very last book, uh, there, there's this big battle, this big climactic battle, the Siege of Gondor, and the battle looks really dark and it's very grim, and it appears like evil may conquer. It looks like light is failing. The city gate has been breached. Reinforcements have come, but it's not enough. How are they going to win? In the darkness of this battle, in the midst of despair, at the end of hope, uh, the king arrives on the scene. And his victory, or I'm sorry, his arrival hearkens the end of the battle and victory for the kingdoms of men. And it seems to me like every great story has this moment, this moment where you don't know, are they going to lose? This, this, this uh, all seems lost kind of moment. But then always an unexpected triumph, some thing comes to their aid and there's a cheer and you get excited because there's victory out of the jaws of defeat. And these stories are very compelling to us as humans. It's repeated again and again and again. Like every movie that's been made ever has the same basic kind of idea. There's a big tragedy and then there's some, some victory that comes at the end. We love these stories. We love them. And we love them because it's the story of God. Because it's the very story of history in the midst of darkness in our day, and battles, and false teaching, and your own sin, and the enemy that surrounds you and closes in on you. There's not enough that we can do. We're going to lose the battle unless the king comes, and he's coming. The king is coming. He's coming with wrath and judgment and mercy for his people. The king is coming, and that is what Jude says to wait for. 
He says to wait for the mercy to be revealed. He says, Christian, you're dwelling in a land of falsehood. You're dwelling in a land of darkness. You're dwelling in a land of the flesh, a land of false teachers. You're surrounded on all sides. So wait for victory because it's coming. And if you do not want to be swayed or discouraged, if you want to know what you should do in the battle, then wait for mercy. The king is coming. The king is coming. He's coming. So, in light of that, men of God who fight in the trenches each week with your own flesh, with lies, shout on, pray on, strengthen your trembling knees, put on your armor, pick up your shield, hope for mercy, and fight the good fight. Contend for the faith. Slay your sin. And keep watch over your soul until the king comes. Jude continues to then give us marching orders for this war in verses 22 through 23. How should we, everyday Christians, fight and contend for the faith? He's told us what we should do to prepare, keep ourselves in the love of God. Now, what does our fight actually look like? Verses 22 to 23, let's read. And have mercy on those who doubt, Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. There are three imperative commands in these verses. Have mercy, save, and have mercy. We fight for the faith by doing the very thing that Jesus does. The very thing that we wait for. We fight by showing mercy. Now when you read this verse in English, just a side Note, when you read this verse in English, it really looks like Jude is speaking about how to help three different groups of people. Notice it says some, and then others, and then others in that section. It talks about those who doubt, other people who we snatch from the fire, other people we show mercy to with fear. I don't think the grammar of this supports that, the idea that this is three different groups. Rather, I think what Jude is doing is explaining how we should have mercy on those who doubt. He's explaining that to us. We show mercy to people by snatching them from the fire and by showing mercy with fear. So who are those who doubt? Uh, he says, have mercy on those who doubt. I think those who do- doubt are just the people who have been ensnared by false teachers. We're not talking about the false teachers. We're talking about people. People who are confused, who are unsure about what's right. Uh, maybe they're just ignorant. They just don't know any better. Any better. Jude commands us, show mercy to them. Show mercy. Show them tenderness and compassion. Don't give them what they deserve. I think this instruction helps set us up for how we should deal with false teaching generally. We follow Jude's example here. Towards the false teachers, Jude was relentless. I mean, he was real fire and brimstone there. He, he, he was unsheathed the sword and started hacking away at them. Uh, But that's not how he wanted us to act towards the people that false teachers prey on. We weren't to have the same response. Our disposition towards false teachers should be decidedly different than our disposition towards the deceived. The false teachers, the leaders, those with kind of authority, we go to war 
I mean, we war against them with Scripture. We, we unsheath the sword of the Spirit, and it flames with the light of heaven, and we go to town. We declare the truth of God. We pronounce judgment. We tell them of wrath to come. We follow Jude's example. I'm reminded of Elijah when he's, uh, you know, dealing with the prophets of Baal, and the false prophets who were leading God's people into hell, cried out to Baal for help. Elijah mocked them. He's like, maybe your God is uh, thinking or maybe he's relieving himself, or maybe he's just on a trip. I don't know. Uh, He's literally mocking them. The prophets all the time have very harsh words towards false teachers. Jesus had equally harsh words for the false teachers of his day, the Pharisees, but they all had an altogether different attitude towards the deceived. Jesus was compassionate and gentle and kind towards those who were caught in snares. He's still firm. He still says, go and sin no more but it's altogether a different attitude than with the Pharisees. We're surrounded by false prophets, and we're surrounded by those whom they deceive. The obvious for us in Utah is Mormonism. That's the most obvious thing. But there's not just that. We also have the false prophets of the age. We have the false prophets of secularism. We have the false prophets in politics. We have the false prophets Uh, in other faiths. We have the papists. We have the insidious false prophets within the realm of Christianity. And our reaction towards them should be swift and harsh, and we should bring the full brunt of the counsel of God to bear against false teachers. Gloomy darkness is prepared for such as these, and they will know the depths of the wrath and fury of God the Almighty. But, church, there are also those who doubt there are also those who have just been ensnared. And towards them, we should show mercy. For the weak, we shouldn't crush them. We shouldn't pounce on them. We shouldn't mock them. We shouldn't declare to them with the same degree of harshness. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying don't pronounce God's displeasure, but do so with wisdom and gentleness and have mercy like God had mercy on you. Don't have mercy by disengaging and leaving them to their their. Uh, damnable errors, but have mercy by snatching them from the fire, as Jude says, by snatching them from the fire. Notice the implication of that phrase. By default, those who doubt are headed for the fire. So make no mistake, judgment comes both for the false teacher and for the one who doubts, but we must warn them in a different kind of tone. Those who are caught in false teaching, believing lies, They're still headed for the fire, and so we do still need to engage them. I was reminded when I was thinking through this of Paul's instructions in 2 Timothy. Paul says this, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Jude tells us also to show mercy with fear, a fear of the wrath of God, fear of the defiling nature of sin. I mean, remember the error that they were dealing with in that day was works don't matter because of grace, Uh, that God's kindness means we can sin, it doesn't matter what we do. And so Jude ends by saying, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This is in one sense Jude's final word on the matter, because after this, he has his doxology, which Clearly, we're not getting to today. Um, But this is really his last final word on the main matter of the text. He ends by saying, hate something. 
That's his final instruction. Hate, hate, hate sin. Hate sin. It is evil and vile and destructive. It's the thing that God hates. So hate it. And make no mistake, our hatred for sin is part of contending for the faith. We need to become experts in hating, uh, specifically hating sin. And not just sin externally, not just sin out there, sin in here. We must learn to war against our flesh and our sinful nature. We hate it because God hates it. We're the beloved of God. Do you know the people who didn't hate their sin? That was the false teachers. So don't follow their teachings. Don't be lured into their trap. We are God's men. We do what he tells us to do. He tells us to go to war against our flesh. And so that's what we ought to do. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you, fight against your flesh. Do not compromise with sin. Do not allow sin to grow in a secret corner of your heart. Do not permit your soul to become okay with it. Let it be always to you vile, disgusting, evil. And do whatever is necessary to rid sin from your life. Jesus says, cut off your hand if you need to. Sin is is worth fighting against. And also, be reminded always of the gospel of Christ. You're a sinner. You know you're a sinner. Hate your sin. Come to the Lord when you sin with a humble heart, seeking forgiveness, on your knees, crying out for mercy. Jesus died on the cross to save sinners. If he's going to save sinners, why not you? You're a sinner. Come before him, confess your sins, and then get back up and go to war again against your flesh. Hate the, hate the garment that's stained by the flesh. Hate every part of sin. We are out of time to get to the doxology, so I guess this is not the final week on Jude. We'll have to do another sermon on that sometime. But um, the end of what I want to say this morning is uh, keep yourself in the love of God for the sake of your own souls, for the sake of the souls of the people you're surrounded by. Keep watch over yourselves and remember that God has shown his love for you in Christ. Cling always to that. Let's pray. Father, we are so weak in recognizing your love for us. We're so unable to see clearly just how kind you've been. Please open our eyes to behold your love for us. Help us to understand it and meditate on it. And then, Lord, as we live this week, remind us of the need to keep ourselves in your love. Lord, guard us, protect us, remind us that we ought to spend time communing with you in prayer. Remind us that we ought to be warring against our flesh. Lord, remind us always of our duties, the duties that we have as Christians to keep ourselves in your love. And Lord, please give us aid. We need your help. Lord, please have mercy on us and give us an eager, longing expectation for the return of your Son, the day of mercy, also the day of judgment. Lord, give us a a longing, an expectation, and a hope for that day to come. And Lord, use that longing for mercy to give us hope and peace and comfort in the midst of a very evil world. Lord, bless the saints who are gathered here this morning. We, we pray all these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.